Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of archives and special collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This edition of our podcast is hosted by Anna Lineweber, a library science graduate student who interned with us this summer. Hi everyone, I'm Anna Lineweber, a graduate student working on a Master's of Library Science from Louisiana State University. I've been working with the UAA Archives as an intern this summer, and as I wrap up my time here and in Alaska, I've reflected on things I think are valuable for others seeking similar careers that I've learned while here, and decided to interview the archivist so that you can learn some insider information. Alright, so my first question for y'all today is, how would you like to see the archival profession develop into the future? So I went with a more practical approach to this one for jobs. So I think that there should be less strictly term positions where they only work for three years Mm -hmm. and then they absolutely have to get out. Because I was at a session a few years ago at SAA where they were discussing this, and then there is that letter that just came out within the profession from the UCLA archivists, and they're on three-year term contracts, and then they're they're gone. Mm-hmm. It's like they have to leave after three years or two. I don't know exactly yeah, what. And a the, lot of positions, not just at UCLA, are right, are like, like that. that. And I think that that can harm the institution because as an archivist, you build relationships mm-hmm. with the community, with researchers, with donors. Um, You're working on a project, and then when you leave, what happens to that project? Does the project not get completed? And you get to know the collections Mm -hmm. better if you're there longer. And there are some places that they'll hire three, four people on these consistent cycles, and I I think that that can be somewhat problematic. I also don't think they're going to stay for three years. I mean, that's one of the real problems with soft-funded projects. Mm is that if you know it's like a two-year grant project, you're telling me honestly after year one passes, you're not job searching? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how do you complete out the grant? How does the institution complete out the mm-hmm. grant when in reality their archivist is probably going to be out the door a year mm-hmm. and a half? It's a real struggle. I mean, because you're not going to then be able to hire somebody for probably six months. And how do you meet the requirements of the grant within that? By like token, I think it's super important for early career people to have a broad experience of archives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think working at the same institution for your career or even in your early career for many, many years does you many favors. It does mean that sometimes you get stuck in places where you can't move up because there's no mobility. Mm-hmm. And then how do you move on? Mm-hmm. So that one I'm really torn on. Yeah. I, I mean, three years and out the door. No, that's not really fair, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. There has to be some yeah. wiggle room on that. But I don't know what to do with the with being at one institution for serious lengths of time, unless you're that's all you want to do. Right. But I've seen people get trapped in jobs that right. five years in, they'd rather be doing anything else, yeah. but or they'd like to specialize or they'd like to not specialize, mm-hmm. and they right. can't move on because right. they haven't developed any breadth of experience. Yeah, and most of these jobs are like solely 
processing, processing jobs. jobs. So they're only getting to do one aspect mm-hmm. of the the work that goes into to archives and and some of them aren't being allowed by their bosses to do anything other than that. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know that you know working on the reference desk helps us describe things better and you know processing collections helps mm-hmm. us provide reference services better and selection so, for the digital archives mm-hmm. well, well trends we're you, seeing yeah even if you look at the job ads for people who are calling for a few more years of experience in processing they're usually like processing manager jobs and they yeah. want supervisory experience too mm-hmm. and if you're in a standard early career processing job, you're not getting what you need to be able to move into those. There are no mid-career or end-of-career jobs that pay wonderfully, that that are processing gigs. It's something you do and something mm-hmm. you need to do within your career, generally, in a lot of places, but it's kind of mm-hmm. a, a bit of a dead end at times. Yeah, yeah. I also added, to kind of go off what you said, was that more like entry-level jobs requiring a master's degree with better pay. Because I think that the salary that I have seen on some of these job ads where they want somebody with a master's degree is atrocious. I mean, $25,000, $30,000, the degree tends to cost more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've seen a lot of jobs where they don't get paid a lot. And I look at some of the institutions that are paying like this, and I wonder how would they ever pay more? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's not just a we have to stop paying entry level these low wages or <laughs> further on. It's up the not chain. even it's not just, just entry, entry level. level. It's right. all over. Yeah. yeah, but how do we do that? How do we get the financial support to pay better? I mean, I think every every educational profession has gone through this. Mm-hmm. Teachers, definitely in the U.S. There's a lot of necessary jobs out there that don't pay very well that mm-hmm. require a certain amount of expertise in schooling but they aren't recompensed mm-hmm. that way how do you fix that mm-hmm. I, you know we were kind of talking about competition in the profession I and another colleague and it was like well there's plenty of room for archives in Alaska I mean we can't all save everything and we we can't all provide access to everything we're just not big enough but the problem with new ones coming in is there's a limited resource base in terms of support. And so if you were to open up a new archives in Alaska, for example, would that money be coming from somebody else who's already in business? I I don't know. It could take support from another Right, right. So it's it's not, I mean, there's plenty of room in the profession for new hires, I think. Mm -hmm. I just don't see the financial support for Mm -hmm. it, and I don't know how you fix that. Yeah, I don't know. I know that's that's an issue that's been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I know it's been discussed. I mean... You know, there are people out there that are working a full-time job and not getting paid very well, so they have to have another job on the side. Or they're just working two part-time positions that neither one really pays that well. But I just, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Is That's how we don't want the profession to develop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to see it develop in a way for people to get paid more fairly, I think. Yeah. Because I do think that some institutions do not pay their archivists well, yeah. from what I've seen in the job ads. And, I mean, there these places need 
the expertise of a professional archivist, but it's, they don't want to. They pay don't want to pay, or they can't. Or they, or they can't. can't. A lot of it is they yeah. can't, and that's that's not. I mean, who? That's not their fault. That's not, no, they just they don't have the funding. So, tabling funding issues for another time <laughs> and its own podcast since it deserves one. Uh, another thing I would like for y'all to speak on is what kinds of things you would like to see graduate programs across the country do to better prepare their graduates for work in the field. I know one thing that we've discussed um, amongst ourselves is sort of the lack of preparation for doing instruction sessions. Mm -hmm. You know, we in graduate school do presentations a lot in front Mm -hmm. of our classes, but we're presenting on the subject matter that we're learning, not necessarily teaching people how to use primary sources in their research or how to find archival resources. And I think that's a skill that I would have liked to have come into this job having already rather than having to develop it on the job. I used to, as one of our interview, in-person interview things, they, the, our candidates always have to do a presentation. And so for a couple of our interviews, um, we one of the, the presentation topic was you get to select what audience you're teaching to, but do a basic archival instruction session. Mm -hmm. If you were teaching class, whether it be undergraduate, high school, graduate, seminar, whatever, do a half hour instruction session on doing archival research. And there were actually a number of applicants that I discovered ended up having teaching backgrounds who did quite well Mm -hmm. because they, they just jumped right in. Uh, but for the newer archivists who hadn't done a lot of outside work and definitely not within academic archives, that was a struggle. It's interesting because I my first real job as an archivist, professional rank job, was at the Utah State Archives. And I actually did a fair amount of teaching there. I taught classes through the Bar Association on how to do legislative intent research. And so I had picked it up before I got here. But I don't think that happens every place. Mm-hmm. And to have had some, my degree is significantly older than, well, it's older than at least one of you. Um, it's older than your degrees. And we didn't do it then, or not much. I mean, we did presentations mm-hmm. in class, like you said, mm-hmm. but actual instruction sessions. And I think it's so important because even when somebody walks in the door who's a newbie, you're doing a one-on-one instruction mm-hmm. session with them. Mm-hmm. I don't use that for a presentation topic anymore. What I wanted to get at is better asked by other questions. But we still, in the phone interviews, uh, spoiler alert, tend to ask a question about if somebody walks in the door and they've never done archival research, how do you kind of give us three steps that you would start to teach them about doing Mm -hmm. archival research? That's been really super enlightening question to ask in an interview context because it tells you if the person's even really thought about it, because every, it's why so much of our stuff in academia, and and at this institution specifically, we're all faculty archivists. Everything, most everything we do for the job is goes under the teaching component of our workload. And that's the argument we make, is because we're doing instruction all of the time with reference. Mm -hmm. So I also think that um, the focus on reference and how it can help and in other aspects of the job is often overlooked. 
it's always couched in terms of access, which is really important. I mean, obviously, we're here to make this stuff accessible, uh-huh. but you have to be able to come into a reference interview not and you don't know who you're talking to, but that person can be a potential donor or they can be somebody within the community that can help you with connections. And I think that that aspect of reference is often overlooked in grad school and in the in the field because it is a form of outreach and you are you know in your reference interview you're teaching the you're tending to teach the person about archives or what you have and then that can turn into a really good relationship and that person might be a donor mm-hmm. so you just never know I mean we've had a couple in the last month where they came and asked us for material but then they're also like hey I have this stuff do you want it and I don't think it's often seen that way. Reference is, is not often seen that way. It's, seen, it's kind of presented as this thing over there. Yeah. I have to wonder, though, is that? I, I, have, I have a concern, and I've had a concern for a long time when doing hiring. There are a huge number of the graduates in archives these days are coming out of schools that are hosted within library programs. Mm-hmm. And as near as I can tell, a lot of the reference training, not a lot, some of the reference training within those library programs is library reference. It's not mm-hmm. archive specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there is a difference. Yeah. Uh, and it's not It's not that that's not useful information. I think there's a lot of similarities. Because you're helping somebody find something. Exactly. Yeah, that's In the end, it's, it's information <laughs> yeah. access, right? Yeah. But because archives are different enough and they usually especially with a new researcher, require a little more intervention at the beginning stages. Mm-hmm. It is different, and I think there's there's a different context around it. And I worry sometimes that some of the schools may not be realizing that their base reference course really yeah. is not serving the archival yeah. graduates yeah. that well. Yeah, my so the reference course that everyone had to take in my program was a library reference course. And then we had another archives reference course on really? top of that. That was it was like reference and outreach. So mm-hmm. half of the course was how do you conduct a reference interview and that kind of thing. And then the second half was how do you, you know, reach out to your community. Mm-hmm. But the library reference course that I had to take was solely about electronic databases. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, you know, even though I got that archives reference course, at the very least, that that having to take that library reference course that was not useful for me, mm-hmm. you know, took away my ability to take something time. else that I mean, would have been a, useful. We had to learn all of the databases. We had a we did stuff within a library mm-hmm. with the reference books, and then we took a huge test on it. And it's like, I don't use it. I use NewsBank. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I mean, searching a database I mean, is not a bad skill yeah. as an archivist. But, but I don't need to, it at that level. I don't well, need to remember I don't need a whole class 200 databases. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not what I do every day. Right. Yeah. So, and if you went to undergrad where you had a, where you did something with research, you're mm-hmm. going to get how to use a database yeah. in your classes. So, and yeah. to get a graduate degree, you need to have gone to undergrad. And it might have been, if it was 20 years ago, I can understand that if you have a large gap. But if there is no gap, yeah. the, you know, I went from 
doing a lot of research in my undergrad to learning how to do research and reference based on databases in grad school. And I think that that class might have been a waste of time. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have it have a more archives-focused reference class than the one with the libraries. In terms of the other courses, you know, the essay guidelines are really extensive. I'm not sure you can actually fit all of them complete within a master's degree program. But it's, you know, I don't even have a problem with like the processing classes and things like that that kind of teach the perfect way to do things mm-hmm. because you learn very quickly in your jobs that that there's sometimes exceptions have to be made that Mm -hmm. not everything is going to be a perfect situation having your fingers in a collection is a good thing but I think Mm -hmm. most programs try to have a practical component Mm -hmm. so I don't think that's a huge problem what I would actually like to see more of I, I it's kind of the meta picture that I don't think everybody's teaching very well this kind of sense I'm trying not to be an archive snob here, and I know it's going to come across that way, and that's really not what I'm trying to do. Uh, this, this sense that this this is a profession, it is separate and apart from other professions. You have to know how it differs to make that work, to really get, but to, to, put, to learn that. Uh, you know, what is it that we do that's different? How can you, if you don't understand what you do is different, how can you sell it to others, especially coworkers, mm-hmm. that may not have a good understanding of what your day-to-day work is? Mm-hmm. All of our outreach has to be based on a very fundamental understanding of what we do and why it matters. And I sometimes wonder if all grads come out of their program out of the programs with a really strong sense of it. I mean, I don't know that you need to learn the entire history of the National Archives and Records Administration. (laughs) I happen to get a lot of that because the professor I took most of my archives courses for Mm -hmm. have been an archivist in the United States. I mean, you should know it exists. (laughs) (laughs) And it's actually a big place for a lot of graduates because they're one of the biggest in the nation. Um, But, you know, some sense of the the kind of really records focus behind the background to this profession, Mm -hmm. you know, that edge of records management that I think is so important that I don't think a lot of people necessarily get, or I'm not seeing visible demonstration. You know, it may be that it was mentioned, it may be that it was talked about, and people just didn't kind of absorb it, because in grad school you're being hit on 40 fronts with a ton of information, and there's Mm -hmm. no way you can remember everything or build it into a framework. Yeah, yeah. But, but I like it, you know, if I say the name of Hillary Jenkins and somebody's actually, read, whether they've read them or not, I've never read them. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to read them. See, I've mm-hmm. yeah. read plenty of Schallenberg and mm-hmm. you know, hosts of others. But, you know, it's some sense that, yeah, there's something there and it does speak to what we do today. And what is that? Mm-hmm. I hear a lot about forming and building relationships in the reference setting and using that towards outreach and the importance of human interaction in archives. So off of that, how can SAA and other bodies bridge the gap between graduate education programs and current archivists? (laughs) Make it affordable for grads to attend. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, honestly, I think a huge amount of the importance of going to SAA conferences and workshops is the networking that can Mm -hmm. occur, the people that you meet. I'm not a fan of the old boys club. I don't think it's a good way to get people hired. 
but every person you talk to and meet gives you that exposure to a slightly different place. You know, you, you, you sit down at a table with somebody who works at a very different institution than yours, and guess what? You're learning about why things are different there and why, why they work, and sometimes that can inform your own work. Mm -hmm. The conversations in the hallways where you discover somebody's got this neat little trick that never occurred to you that suddenly is going to make your life a whole lot easier, um, I, I think it can provide that environment. Mm -hmm. the, the professional organizations can provide that environment in which those conversations can occur. But they're also very expensive to get to. And I realize I'm saying that coming from a perspective of Alaska, where, you know, if a conference is somewhere in the southern U.S., it costs most archivists in the lower 48, you know, $150 in airfare to get to, and suddenly it's 700 for us. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a challenge. But when you add registration, yeah, and house, it's not yeah. it's not within yeah. the fiscal reach it's of like a lot of people. Like seven eight hundred dollars, and like even if they have scholarships for students yeah. to attend, new professionals often can't yeah. afford to attend. Like yeah. I was on a commit an award committee awarding these students and and new professionals. They both could apply. Um, this award, but I can't afford to attend. Right. Yeah, SAA. So. Yeah, not every the reason, one of my concerns, and I think it's a professional concern at large, is the sense that essay is mostly for academic archivists, which I find a real problem. I don't, I don't like that. I don't think it's good for any of us. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, aside from a few places like here, a lot of academic archivists have better support to attend. And it's really hard to diversify a profession in which only one group of people can really afford to go to the conferences or participate mm -hmm. in continuing ed. Mm -hmm. Even Northwest Archivists' is their annual meeting, which is relatively inexpensive as those things go, is still fairly expensive for us to get to. Mm -hmm. like, there are other programs. They do things like the mentoring mm -hmm. program, yeah. which I think is really good. But again, that comes down to the mentor-mentee relationship. How much time are they willing to put into it? Mm -hmm. Do they email? Do they actually email each other? Do they ask, ask questions? Do they do they yeah. talk? Do they meet up? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I have no answers. I think it's impossible to envision a future that, for us, that doesn't involve some sort of professional involvement and development, because of that networking context. But how to do it better? Mm -hmm. I think that's just going to be a learning process. Yeah, I agree. So what knowledge and skills would you say are most critical but might be unexpected for graduates entering the field? Social skills. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I mean, so much what we do revolves around people. I mean, we're either describing the products of people. We have to talk. You have to talk to your coworkers, whether you want to or not, um, whether that's Thank fellow you. archivists or, you know, your boss who might not be an archivist, but they're still your boss. You have to have a communication to be able to communicate effectively mm. or researchers or donors. You have to be prepared to be outside of the workplace and somebody asks you what you do. You have to be prepared to explain that no matter where you are. I mean, I was on backpacking last weekend and somebody asked me what I did and then I had to explain to them what I did so here I am in the middle of nowhere and I'm still having to talk about my job <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have to be able to communicate and be prepared for that 
And I think a lot of people or some people enter the archives field thinking that they can just sit in the background and process a collection and not talk to anybody. But that's, I mean, you're still working on the papers of a person or a corporation, but you have to be able to understand people in a certain way. Well, and I, I don't think. think you can necessarily describe a lot of collections outside the context of talking to some people who have been involved in creating materials like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, okay, one of the real challenges to original order is we don't necessarily recognize it when we see it. But if you talk to people who are doing things like that, sometimes there are original orders that are just hidden from us. We just haven't met the person who can tell us about mm -hmm. them. You can't be expected mm -hmm. to recognize everything. Mm -hmm. And if you rearrange something significantly, you may be removing a lot of context that the end user could have used. That can be dangerous. Or making bad appraisal decisions about what stays and what goes. You've taken a corporation's records, a business of some ilk. The standard rules about we may not keep tax returns may or may not apply because that is the business mm -hmm. of the business. You know, right. it, it tells you something about that business. So. Be still to talk to the person who like who created it if, if, you, can. if you can, and if right. you're working on a corporate archives, chances are there's people within that corporation that are still there, so you have to be able to discuss with them like the collection. And I even if you're just processing stuff, you still have to talk to people. Right. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I want math skills. Yeah. I really want math skills. They don't have to be. I mean, you don't have to be doing massive amounts of calculus here. But some uh, people at the field loves rainmakers, right? I mean, let's face yeah. it. People who can bring in grants mm -hmm. are people who can get jobs anywhere. Mm -hmm. And if you can't put together a budget, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many soft skills like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a soft skill, but project management. Not a huge amount, again, but some sense of how do you take something from a starting point to an ending point and get it done within the time allotted. What decisions do you make? Can you plan that out? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be hugely planned, but we all know that when you don't do a little bit of planning, sometimes these things stretch on for years with no end in sight. Yeah, I mean, I, I got really tired there for a while of putting together budgets for other people who were putting together grant proposals because they simply couldn't do the basic arithmetic required. Mm -hmm. That's really frustrating. Mm -hmm. uh, but that kind of goes back to the I, the concept of of this kind of broad, a, a jack of all trades, master of none. I don't care about the master mm -hmm. of none, but the, the jack of all trades, anything, the more basic exposure you have to science, the more likely you're going to be able to recognize science when it crops up in your collections. And it will, probably, in some context. I'm not a fan of poetry, but I recognize it usually when I see it. There's, I, I honestly think the best background for a, an, an archivist is a pretty diverse background, not really heavily disciplinary based in any of the traditional academic disciplines. There's a reason this is a professional discipline and not an academic discipline for the most part. But I, I mean, you look at us, okay, I've got the standard undergraduate history degree, but neither Gwen nor Veronica do. And I think that's brilliant because they all bring a different thing to it. Yesterday we were passing around a folder full of translations and trying to figure out what the original language is. You know, it took about four of us to finally pinpoint finish. There were mm -hmm. some suspicions, uh, but 
we wouldn't have been able to say, no, it's definitely not this, if we hadn't had the, the individual backgrounds that we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, just like a skill, not necessarily one that you might think of, but just flex being able to be flexible <laughs> with your <laughs> with your time. <laughs> because I can't tell you how many times mm -hmm. I've planned to work on a project and um, you know something else walks through the door, a new collection walks through the door or a, a really intensive research question walks through the door or a piece of equipment is temporarily not <laughs> functioning and and it it just kind of um throws off my entire plan for the day and then or you think you're done with a collection and the donor mm -hmm. says i have more stuff <laughs> or sure. the more stuff just shows up and you yeah. have you to get just a warning. be able to like roll with it yeah. Yeah. and you just go with the flow and just be aware that what you think mm -hmm might be finished tomorrow, might not be finished might, for another week. It might not be week. finished for another. Or you, you plan to work on a collection, and when you get into the collection, you realize that there's a lot more work oh for you to yeah. do. Like you, you come across some some slides that are moldy and, and <laughs> yeah. need to be dealt with. And you have to stop. And you have to stop. Whatever your process is. Mm -hmm. Or nitrate, find nitrate. <laughs> Unexpectedly. Yep. Ruins Sometimes. everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of those things are things I consciously and subconsciously stick into work into interview questions that can kind of assess that because mm -hmm. it, I hadn't really put my finger on that. Thank you, Gwen, for saying mm -hmm. that because it is hugely important. Somebody who can roll with the flow, somebody who can be interrupted and not not entirely just kind of lose their place and not be able to get back to mm -hmm. it is it's a necessary skill especially mm -hmm. in a small shop like ours where mm -hmm. we're all doing a little bit of everything and you never know what the next thing through the mm -hmm. door is going to be uh, you know we can put notices on our web page all we want about please like right now with this construction going on please do not drop stuff off call us ahead of time we'll come fetch it but people still show up at the door carrying mm -hmm. buckets of stuff and it's like oh wow okay now what do we do we have to drop everything and, <laughs> and go figure out where we move this to mm -hmm. being able to prioritize that yeah. yeah like I just like I finish one addition to a collection and then two weeks later I get another addition to three collections that I had worked on in the last year and it's like well when do I do each of those and just prioritize yeah. it and you I have mean, to be able to do that realistically around here <laughs> We do tend to, if somebody stole around and they did the first part of the collection, mm -hmm. they get the next bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because they've been in. But, but yeah. realistically, that's not a requirement. Right. I mean, you could say, you know what, Arlene, I just don't have time to do mm -hmm. this. Somebody else has got to do this. Or I've got this piece of it parceled out that if we could get some student labor, maybe we could have them work mm -hmm. on it for a while and I can walk away and get something else done. Yeah. Um, we don't always have student labor, so that, and lots of places don't have people that they can do that with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where one person shops don't have that option at all. They yeah. just kind of have to deal. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot about a mixture of individual workload and one person shops having to manage your own projects and then also working in a team and 
balancing the various archival work amongst team players. So to conclude, as academic archivists in a university, what do you wish students, faculty, and other administration understood about the work of archiving? How wow. expensive it can be? <laughs> <laughs> the cost of it? Well, um, I think the administrators <laughs> understand that one quite well. Um, I mean, the f I mean, how much supplies cost? That's what I mean. I yeah. mean, the fact that our supplies can be quite expensive, and I mean, we, we have to, to budget for it. Them. Yeah, and we budget for it and prioritize what we need. But I think there are some people that don't understand the time that can go into describing a collection, and that time costs money, and how much those boxes and folders and enclosures cost. I think that a lot but, of the work of archives is invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of what we do, people don't realize. You know, unless they walk by and see three or four researchers in there, they assume that nothing's happening. And that's, you know, I, I don't think, I don't know how to how to demonstrate well that how much of our workload, from the reference standpoint at least, mm -hmm. is email or phone. It's mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. Um, so much of the work we do describing collections is done in offices, is not done out in the research room, although looking around here right now you wouldn't know that. There's boxes everywhere and many of them are ongoing collections that are mm -hmm. under processing. The donor work that we do is largely invisible. Mm -hmm. There's a few people around that realize, but it's, it's interesting to me because especially for, not, for an archives within a library setting, there's a lot of library administration that kind of focus on the division of personnel versus acquisitions budget and they want to kind of keep it at this perfect point mm -hmm. you know this much people versus this much stuff but our stuff never counts yeah. toward that they, it's not viewed as a dollar amount that could be yeah. put on collections not that we really want to get into the business of appraisal appraising unique one-of-a-kind materials how you put how a dollar you? amount really but when they talk about cuts to financial cuts to the acquisitions budget oh no no our numbers getting a little too low on acquisitions we've got more people than we have stuff it's like hello wait a minute i brought in x amount of collections last year they took up this cubic mm -hmm. footage this mm -hmm. they have this kind of research utility mm -hmm. but even getting our stuff out there Periodically, I run into professors who've been on campus for quite a while that had no idea we have an archive. It's yeah. like, have you never been in the library? I know you've you, been on the third floor. <laughs> <laughs> you walked right by us. You probably <laughs> looked you, in and what wondered what the space was. <laughs> and we do get students who wander in. Well, it's just, you know, I've yeah. been here for a while yeah. and I just have always wondered. Well, the, or the what's a rare book? <laughs> the common thing that I see with students is that they don't realize that they can use our collections. Yeah. Yeah, they think that's a big that problem. we're just here for the professors and you know, we're here for everyone. You don't even need to be affiliated mm -hmm. with the university. So um, that's yeah. that's one that we really try to And it's funny because we get the public know. thinking that we're just here for these students and you know, not as much as the as, students you know. though. I think <laughs> the public I mean I run into occasionally members of the public yeah. who don't realize they can use us. Yeah. But that's not nearly as prevalent as I find it in the student body. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. fascinating to me because they're here on campus. What do they think is in the library yeah. if it's yeah. not for them? Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's why we go do things around campus. We go to kickoff. Mm -hmm. We you know, we, we do some things that we can. We do a few like our our cookery thing once a year. We're mm -hmm. trying to push that out to students a little bit more to give them the concept that 
we are here for them. Mm-hmm. And we do teaching mm-hmm. when we can. We work with professors so we can go to classes and or have classes come to us. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we're making good strides. I would have oh, said yeah. 10 years ago, we were... It, we yeah. were nowhere near here in yeah. terms of our outreach. We're seeing to students. more students. We are too. seeing a lot. More and students. some of them aren't affiliated with a class that we gave an instruction session mm-hmm. to. So I think that's a really good sign that, yeah. that they know that we're here and that we are for them. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for answering my questions today. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Archiving AK. We're looking forward to participating in STEM Day on campus in early October. So for our September podcast, Arlene, Gwen, and Veronica will be reviewing some of our science, technology, engineering, and mathematics collections here at the archives. We'll be talking about the ways in which STEM materials can appear in collections, taking a closer look at a few of the STEM-focused collections we hold, and talking about some of the challenges they may present for access and use.